what do you think goes on in your brain? I feel like put books away. Bits of your brain put books away. <laughs> so in your brain you have books? The books of memories are in your brain. Yeah. Episode 3 of The Function Room. Model Behaviour. All about mathematical modelling. My guest is Anya Byrne and she has maths on the brain. My name is Anya Byrne and I'm an assistant professor of mathematics at University College Dublin. Specifically, I'm an applied mathematician who uses mathematical modelling to understand biological systems. Now, straight away, my ears prick up. I hear mathematical modelling. Never really paid any attention to it before. But in the last six months, all I'm hearing is mathematical models. What's a mathematical model? So I think I'll take a step back and answer the question, what is a model in general rather than a mathematical model first? A model is an abstraction of reality. It's a partial and imperfect description of what's going on around us. So if I were to ask you to describe Irish weather with a couple of words, you'd draw on your previous experience and perhaps say something like, it's wet, windy and occasionally sunny. And that in itself is a model of the Irish weather system. It's a description based on previous experience with the system. And it also helps you predict what the weather will be like when you open your curtains in the morning. Now, with the mathematical model, The only difference is we use equations rather than words. And these equations tell us how the components of the system, for example, the temperature, might change with respect to some parameters, such as the time of the day or the time of the year. And parameters, that's a thing that's going on in the environment around us, is it? Like when people talk about parameters, it's things we need to take account of. Yes, exactly. So as I was saying, with the temperature, parameters that you'd have to take into consideration would be the time of the year. Is it summer or is it winter? What time of the day is it? Is it nighttime or daytime? Typically during the day, it's warmer. During the summer, it's warmer. We know what the weather is. We've lived it. We've modelled it. We can predict it, even informally, even in small talk. And then in mathematical modelling, you know what's going on on the edge of the model. And then it's time to throw these equations in. So like in a mathematical model, what does it look like? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose a mathematical model is just really a set of equations. So we'll have some variables. So these are things that change with time and then some parameters, things that you need to take into account to figure out how that variable is going to change over time. Okay, so in your modelling you were mentioning that you model biological systems, right? And I just, I think of bodies and humans as being chaotic. Like, where would you start applying equations to, you know, the organs of the body? It seems impossible, but obviously, you know, you're not looking for the exact perfect answer. Where do you start when you're modeling something that seems to me as absolutely chaotic as a brain or a lung. How does it work? Well, I suppose you draw on things that you already know. So one of the nice things about 
the brain, for example, which is um, the system that I work on, is that the units in the brain, so these neurons, they send electrical signals to communicate. And we already know a lot about electricity. It's been studied for decades. So we can draw on the things we know about electricity to understand how those neurons send electrical signals to each other in the brain. I remember doing physics and you'd have these electrical circuit diagrams and there'd be volts and amps and little squiggly lines for resistance. And I think of it as copper. Uh, I think of uh, a big science lab. I think of everything in a much more exploded scale. But you're talking about cells and they are little currents, little circuits. And And that tells you a lot about what they might do. Yeah, exactly. So one of the biggest advances in mathematical neuroscience was made by Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley in the 1950s when they discovered that a neuron could be described one of those using one of those electrical circuit diagrams you just mentioned. So it has all the same components as your electrical circuit. You'll find things like a battery, a switch, a resistor, capacitor. It just yeah, except it's a bit wet. <laughs> it's a bit mushy. That's it's that's a that's there's almost a breakthrough moment for me, the idea that electricity is uh not done on dry desks with copper wires on top of wooden platforms. Electricity is everywhere. Exactly. And I think in terms of trying to visualize it, typically what's done is they take slices of brain tissue from say uh, people who didn't who donate their brains to science and they'll put electrodes, so they're little metal pieces that can measure electricity and they'll put them at different points on that brain slice and see how the electrical activity goes from one point to the other in the same way that you'd put, say, a voltmeter onto your electrical circuit and measure the current between those two points. I feel like I want to donate my brain to science now. (laughs) Just to see what they might find. So, so okay, so you, you were working off this basic thing, right? I know some rules about electricity. It doesn't matter that brains are mushy and grey and spongy and wet. I can still apply some rules. This is where you, do you come in at this stage knowing these things and then saying, if a million neurons do this with in this direction from left to right, uh, when somebody is getting a kick in the knee, I can predict certain things. Is is that a gross simplification? That's yeah, the general idea. So as you said, I typically don't work on the single neuron scale. I like to look at thousands of neurons because in the brain, there's around 100 million neurons and it'd be impractical to try to describe them all individually. So we look for general concepts such as what happens, the electrical activity in say the motor cortex, the area of the brain that's responsible for movement when you say kick me in the knee. And one of the interesting findings with motor cortex is that it actually switches off when we're moving. And by switching off, I mean that the average activity seems to be very low. And that would be because all of the neurons are doing different things. So when you take the average all of their activities cancel out. And then when you stop moving, they all have to resynchronize. So they come back together to 
kind of monitor background activity and we see we see a sharp increase in electrical activity before it settles back down to the normal level. And is is that us on autopilot? And then when we stop, we're ready to start again? Or am I getting the wrong end of the, the, the stick there? So I suppose it's when we're not doing anything, the motor cortex is preparing itself to deal with incoming information. And the optimal way to do that is for the neurons to be somewhat synchronized, to to be doing somewhat the same thing. And then when they get some information or they get a command to move, then some of them will start thinking about what that movement is going to mean. Some of them will start thinking about how to actually do that movement. And say some might think about how to stop the movement. So you're looking at 100,000 neurons and... You're, you've got your measurements, uh, you're getting some data from them. There's voltages and there's maybe the time between them doing something and then the rest of the body reacting. And uh, where do you put your maths in on top of that then? Where does where does the equation, where something on the left and something on the right spitting out an answer, how does that get thrown in on top? Typically, we're looking at, say, the rate of change of something in the system, say voltage and we have some general ideas of how that might change over time. Certain things will make it increase, certain things will make it decrease. So on the left side, you'll have the rate of change of V, and on the right side, you might have a negative term that will say it'll decrease under these circumstances, and then like a positive term that says it will increase under some other set of circumstances. And then you'll fit that equation to the data. So you might have some parameters that say it should increase by at a certain rate, but you don't know what that rate is when um, you stop moving. Or it should decrease at a certain rate when you are moving, but you don't know what that rate is. And then when you compare your model simulations to the actual data, you can fit that rate of increase and that rate of decrease to the data. Okay. And then if, you, if there's a gap, you say, right, I need to tweak, I need to twiddle some knobs on the model. Is that it? Yeah. So usually we'll say, we think maybe that the rate of increase with respect to move, stopping movement is around 10 and the rate of decrease for when you start moving is five and you run it in that scenario and you say, that looks nothing like the data. So we'll change that 10 to a five and run it again and that might look more like the data and you kind of continue in that fashion until you get good agreement between the model and the data and then once the model matches the data then you don't need the data so much because you just run the model for the future is that would that be right so you don't need to measure as much then because you're like i think we've got this model that works so then i have my hundred thousand neurons over here that i've been studying and i think that it'll probably work for another brain, which I don't have access to, or a hundred people's brains, um, because I've got a match in this case. Yes, and that is the main purpose of a model. There's no point just fitting to the data and saying, yes, it worked. You have to be able to learn something from your model, make a prediction, or make a generalization. 
So that's like, because otherwise you're just like saying you have a weather forecaster who says it is currently raining and we're all saying, no shit, <laughs> I'm getting wet. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. So what I find interesting about all of this, and it's a thing I kind of come back to a bit in this podcast, is that you have to be very comfortable with kind of getting the answer wrong and then slightly less wrong and a vanishingly small amount of wrongness until you're <laughs> happy enough. Whereas our impression of maths and sums is, you know, here's a problem. And then if you get it wrong, you get a little red mark, uh, see me after school. And <laughs> I mean, that's fair enough. We need to learn how to add and all that. But you, I suppose, have to be very comfortable with doubt and error until it becomes, because that tells you more in some ways than accidentally getting it right first time. Yeah, and I think that's actually um, a new model for teaching in that regard that a lot of um, teachers and lecturers are taking on a approach to assignments where you give the students the assignment and then you grade it and you give it back to them and see if they can make an improvement on the solution for a higher grade. And that's more realistic in terms of the real world, in terms of what I do as a mathematical modeler day to day. And that idea that the answer is always changing and we're getting closer and closer to the correct answer is one of the things I really love about being an applied mathematician. It's an evolving problem. So for example, I might design a model that's a good fit for some data. Then you might design an entirely different model that's also a good fit for the data. But both ideas can't be true. And that's where, again, predictions come in. So we will both make predictions. And then when we learn more about the system, we can say, my model was wrong and yours was correct. And when we learn something about the system, typically what will happen is that we're both wrong. It's very difficult to get it exactly correct. But parts of our, our ideas will be correct. And when we put them together, we can better understand the system. That leads neatly to, you know, the biggest story in the universe at the moment, coronavirus, COVID-19. And that's where I first, you know, hear people talking, you know, everybody in the street is talking about mathematical models. And there was modeling at the start based on what they knew. So mapping what you know from the brain modeling onto a disease, what would they have been doing over the last six months? So they, they start their model, they run it. And then they run it again. How how does it work in practice, say, with diseases? So typically with infectious diseases, there's a class of models known as SIR models. And the S stands for susceptibles, I, infectious, and R, removed. And the idea is that we separate the population into these three different categories. They're either susceptible to the disease, so they can catch it. They are infected with the disease that would be your infectious or the third one they're removed they have some level of immunity either they've been vaccinated or they've developed immunity through having the disease already and then the equations will describe how you transition between each of these different categories so if you're susceptible to the disease then you could move to the infectious category if you catch the disease off someone who's currently infected. And then you'll move from the infectious category to the recovered category after, or sorry, the removed category 
after some defined time period, which is usually the infectious period of the disease. So you're there with you, you, you know your three groups and are you, do you look at a population and say, right, this is how many old people there are, this is how many people there are who are vulnerable based on stats we have from the health service, this is the amount of young people that we think will behave in a certain way. Like, are you, at what point do, do you throw in, into the equation parameters that say number of people who are likely to go and go partying <laughs> during Freshers' Week and because it's just a natural human thing to do and let's not let's not condemn everybody but you know when you know when when people are keeping up to date with a changing situation in any in any country are they going right we've got our three groups and then okay uh it's summer so people are going to do this and then they 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 twiddle the the summer knob (laughs) and there's this amount of people who are vulnerable and they, they adjust for that like is it does it go down to that level of detail so with mathematical modeling there's many different scales that you can model at and at the start it would have been very high level just these three populations and see if we can learn anything and then the more we learn the more detail we can include in the model so for example we could have a different class for young people as to old people so you'd have a group of susceptible young people a group of susceptible old people and then a group of infectious young people a group of infectious old people and so on and you also might have different classes within your infectious for example with COVID-19 there are people who are symptomatic and people who are asymptomatic so they would have different properties in the sense that if you're symptomatic, you're going to self-isolate. Whereas if you're asymptomatic, you're going to continue going about your business and you will infect more people than a, say, symptomatic person who is self-isolating would. Okay, you've got all these parameters. And when you press play, uh, just to get slightly technical for a second, what kind of maths is going on? Like, I presume time is a big thing. So you're kind of pressing play on the model and time is passing. So do you have like some very fancy schmancy maths showing how people might interact and there's a whirring noise and then it spits <laughs> out a number at the end? Is that like, what's what's the mad maths that's going on right in the middle? Is it is it good old fashioned Delta Y over Delta X, the the old curves we did and get the slope of the tangent and all those things that trigger warning for people from the Leaving Cert <laughs> or any or any school exams. Is is that the kind of fundamentally what's going on right in the heart of that, that whirring machine? Yes, there's lots of calculus. So that's your Delta Y, Delta X. Okay, sorry for springing calculus on you there without enough warning. And if you left school after the intercert or the group cert, you won't have done calculus. And if you did maths up to leaving cert, calculus may have left an indelible fear on you. But basically, it's a type of maths that deals with working out how fast something is changing. There's lots of tricks. We remember stuff like multiply down by the power and reduce the power by one. 
all that kind of thing. Equations, y equals something on the right-hand side. There's going to be about two minutes of x's and y's, and then we'll be back to more English language. But we'll definitely talk about the calculus more in another episode. So don't panic. And I promise I won't spring anything like that on you without fair warning. Uh, you didn't sign up for equations. So back to the show. Or dy dx, um, if you prefer. So with calculus, you've got your integration and your differentiation. So again, those things you would have learned at leaving cert. So if you remember, you might have had something like y is equal to x squared. And then you have to differentiate x squared. So anyone who remembers differentiation will remember you have to decrease the power by one and multiply by that number that was in your power. So x squared, you decrease the two to a one and multiply by two. So we differentiate x squared, you get two x. Then you have dy dx, which means the derivative of y with respect to x is... So that's how fast the left-hand side changes based on all the mad stuff that's going on on the right-hand side. Exactly. So you've got your dy dx, and that's the rate at which y changes with respect to x. And in terms of COVID-19, you could think that y is your number of cases, and then your x could be time. So the rate at which the number of cases changes with respect to time. And it's and then on this right-hand side, this fabled right-hand side, you've got time and all sorts of all the weird Greek letters on the right-hand side is stuff that we're throwing in parameters and constants, things that we need to take account of. Yep. And one of the things that will be on the right-hand side, of course, is the current number of cases, because as we've all heard many times, the rate at which we have new cases depends on the current number of cases. So if we have lots of people who are currently infected, then the next day we're going to have even more people infected because there are already a significant number of people who are out there infecting all of the susceptible people in the population. They run all of this, they press play and it spits out. And then I presume they want one number that comes out of it that they can easily say, right, we've taken everything into account and we think on average... If you have one person with the disease based on the average type of person we have gone around with the disease at the moment and the weather, whether there's been a big match on the level of restrictions, their, their likelihood of obeying the restrictions, all that kind of thing. It's all averaged out. And it comes down to if one person has the disease, how many are they going to pass it on to? And is that R? That's the famous R. Yeah. So that would be your kind of effective R rate how many people on average will one infected person pass the disease onto. Okay. And then that says, right, currently R is this. If you if we carry on the way we are, this is how many we're going to have. And we're not saying yet how sick they'll be, but we've only this many hospital beds. So literally you do the maths and you'll find we're going to be in trouble. It's like, is that the whole point? There's a load of maths going on. We've run the machine. Here's what we're looking at in the next two weeks. Yeah, and that is it really. And as you said, you you want to predict what is going to happen. And you said that time frame of two weeks. And that's probably realistic because as we've been seeing, people's behavior is changing day by day, week by week. So we can only make predictions based on 
the current kind of behavior of people. And in two weeks time, that behavior might be slightly different. What has changed in six months then? That what, what do you know of that they might have? What knobs on the model have they tweaked? And what faders have they pushed up <laughs> on the big imaginary machine I'm thinking of that represents the model? Any, any biggies? So I suppose you can think back to middle of March when we had um, our restrictions introduced initially. Well, that would have been a big knob to turn because we are going from everyone going about their business and having as many contacts every day as they wished to um, around the start of April, you were only allowed to see the people that you lived with and you weren't supposed to be you know, seeing anybody else. Um, so that would be a significant reduction in the number of people you see and therefore the number of people you would infect if you had the disease. So this is why every, this is why the other big word is contacts, how many people we're in contact with every day based on the rules. And I suppose our likelihood of obeying those rules. So if the rules say you can only meet six people and we're sort of 90% likely to do what's being asked of us, then you can roughly work out how many people the average person might meet. Yeah, exactly. So if you have maybe a 50% chance of passing the disease on to every person you meet, then if you meet six people, you're going to pass it on to three other people. Whereas if you meet two people, you're only going to pass it on to one of those on average. The asymptomatic population must be so tricky because they're not they're not doing nothing wrong, like within the boundaries, but we don't know what they might do. Like, is this a new thing? Was this a, when people, when they're looking at models and they've run it and they say, oh, it's a bit like the flu, but a bit worse. It's, uh, it's not as bad as measles in terms of infectious. And then like a month in, you're going, oh shit, it's all these asymptomatic people. This weird monster of a, of a disease is trying to pull a fast one on us, not to anthropomorphize it too much it's just a virus doing what viruses do there it it must be like in the modeling area you're going okay we need to change this really quickly because there's stuff going on that's not matching yeah and i think that's what makes covid19 a really clever disease um if you compare it to that um sars outbreak around the turn of the century and what we found with sars was that it made people so sick they couldn't do anything but self-isolate. They were so sick that they had to go to bed and therefore they didn't infect very many people. Whereas now with this new SARS virus, COVID-19, we have all these asymptomatic people who are out there going about their daily business, not knowing they're sick, so they don't know that they should restrict their contacts and self-isolate. And then they're affecting many people as they go about their daily business. When you watch as a mathematical biologist or biological mathematician, whichever you want, uh, when you when you watch how modeling is represented and is there anything that frustrates you, like that if you could get on air <laughs> and say, look, here's some things you need to remember or I'd just like to make a quick comment. Is there anything that annoys you about what your beloved area <laughs> is being uh, represented? Because... It's the biggest news story, so it's being talked about across so many different types of news. You know, Egypt's like me have opinions. My the R number of my opinions has been above one 
for all my life. <laughs> <laughs> what what frustrates you? Um, I think in a way, it's people not realizing that we're all just doing our best. So a lot of the time, people will turn on the aggressive and say, "Oh well, those mathematicians overreacted. It wasn't as bad as they said." however many thousand people didn't die as they predicted back in March. But of course, those things didn't happen because we adapted, we put in restrictions. Maybe some of those restrictions were too heavy and people will complain saying, you know, the restrictions were too heavy and the modelers got it wrong. But of course, we're just doing our best with the information we have. The same way that everyone at the moment is just kind of doing their best to deal with this virus and get their life back to some form of normality. So what you're saying is you're not part of a giant uh, conspiracy with Big <laughs> Pharma and the New World Order, or if you are, your check hasn't come through yet, I presume. You haven't been paid yet the, the no, huge amount of money that you're due for, for making the model say the thing. So obviously you're going back teaching over the next while, but in terms of research, what are you most looking forward to working on? So one of the projects that I'm hoping to work on this year is related to deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease, which is a technique where they place electrodes inside the brain of a patient with Parkinson's disease and they send brief electrical signals into the brain um, to stabilise the electrical activity. For Parkinson's patients, their brain activity is abnormal in that it's overly synchronous. And by sending these brief electrical signals, we can help bring it back down to a normal level of electrical activity. Overly synchronous, does that mean all the neurons are firing in the same direction at the same time and therefore they're the actual useful work they, they perform is not happening the way it should? Yeah, that's exactly it. And so you're, you, you you inject the signals and or you hope to inject electricity. To Is that just to kind of spark the chaos that it should be in a brain? The problem is that nobody knows why this technique works. So that's what I am hoping to investigate. This technique has been around for at least a decade and it works very well, but we don't understand why. Okay. But if you understood why... You could tweak it, make it better, recommend that everybody do it, just get some control over, I suppose, as a ma- as as both medics and mathematicians don't like when, when shit just happens. Yeah. With deep brain stimulation, each time a new patient comes in, they have to spend a long time trying to adjust the settings of those electrical pulses to um, have the optimal results. So if we understand why the um, why deep brain stimulation works, then we might be able to say what specific stimulation parameters we need to use for, say, patient one and patient two might need a different set of stimulation parameters and patient three, a different one again. Will you be using somebody's brain or will you take a lot of data on that's been emailed to you and then run your models? How, how will that work in practice? Yeah, so I wouldn't typically be doing any of the experiments. There's lots of data out there on deep brain stimulation. So as I said, it's been around for over a decade. So there's plenty of people doing these experiments who can provide 
data for me to fit my model. It just, just struck me there that it's not like in music where all the good tunes have been invented already. There's so much work, is there? Like there's loads of data. So there's loads of work for mathematicians of all types to interpret interpret a lot of data. You, you'll never run out of work, I presume, in, in when it comes to working on the brain. Yeah, and I think in the last couple of years as well, imaging and recording techniques for the brain have come on leaps and bounds. So there's even more data being generated every year and it's almost impossible for um, us mathematicians to keep up. Wow. Well, if nothing else comes of this chat, Anya, I am a little bit closer to donating my brain for, <laughs> for science research. It hadn't occurred to me before, but now uh, now I can't think about anything else. I'm, I'm, I'd love to know what kind of weird things my neurons would do if uh, electric shocks from somewhere else were applied to them. It's really fascinating. And I wish you the best of luck because... This is this is real maths, but then real people. You must be pretty chuffed that lots of what might have seemed at the time dull stuff has this incredible application. Yeah, there's a mathematical equation to describe almost anything. So no matter what you're interested in, you can come up with an equation to describe it and learn something about it. Okay, I'll take that with me throughout the next thing. Then the very next thing I do, I'll start seeing equal signs. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much, Anya Byrne. Best of luck with your work. And I suppose also with the big challenge of teaching the mixture of online and in person. You probably need a model to work out the efficacy <laughs> of that over the next while. Thanks very much for coming into the function room. Thanks for having me. That's it from the Function Room. Huge thanks to Anya Byrne. You can get in contact at hello at colinmoregan.com. Find me on Twitter at colinmoregan or the Function Room podcast is at Function Room Pod on Twitter. I'd love to hear all your suggestions, uh, constructive criticism, anything at all that's on your mind, maths wise. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Does your brain do sums? What kind of sums? Tis and tis is four. Those kinds of... Those kind of sums. Yeah. It could be doing anything, doesn't it? Like, your brain is talking to me right now, isn't it? And it's coming up behind you. It's sneaking up behind me, is it? Ah! (laughs) My brain got scared.